Around the world, scientists and entrepreneurs are integrating abundant renewable energy to invent a better future that is healthier and more affordable. That's all good news for the planet. This is Entrepreneurial Journeys, a podcast about entrepreneurs providing solutions to social and environmental challenges across the world. My name is Emma Kloppert, and over the next episodes, I'm going to take you on a global tour to meet these impact entrepreneurs from the cities of Central Africa to the coasts of Europe. How have their companies been built? Which problems are they trying to solve? And what are the honest personal stories behind them. In this fifth episode, my guest is Guido van Staveren van Dijk, founder and CEO of Moji Coffee. We had a mind-boggling talk about something you probably drink most days, coffee. There is a whole world we don't know of behind the sips we take, and something radically needs to change. Guido combines big ideals with capital, and is solving the puzzle of fair chains, not only giving coffee farmers a better price for their beans, but also roasting in the country of origin with an eye for the environment. But Guido's ambitions reach even further. I'm going to ask the community to become an investor, but not as a shareholder in the classical sense, uh, buy some shares and give them a dividend, but uh, it's not about ownership, but about taking ownership. So you can only become part of this microeconomy if you, as a customer or an investor, also actively participate in the flourishing of the, uh, the dot exit. Let's take a look at the role social entrepreneurship can play in creating fairer and greener supply chains first, before we talk with Guido about the impact you can make with coffee. The expert that will lay out the bigger picture this episode is Willemijn Verloop. And Willemijn has quite the resume. Being the founder of Warchild, she now is the founder of impact organization Social Enterprise NL and venture fund Rubio Impact Ventures. Willemijn says, it all starts with understanding how supply chains work and what is wrong with them in the first place. I think it's very obvious that we um, are coming from a situation where we did not take into account the, the, the real price for the people that are producing the products we are using and that we have gone into a very, very unfair supply chain with many products. And fortunately, there are some brands that are trying to actively change that, but it's not easy um, to be able to make sure that everybody actually gets a living wage or a fair wage or income uh, on their contribution to the, whatever product or service uh, is being made. It's a huge, it's been a huge problem. I mean, fortunately, uh, there is legislation coming that's trying to change some of this. And I think a lot of social entrepreneurs have really lobbied for that, for the EU directive, which we're close to now, where there is much more responsibility for the, the manufacturer or whatever the product is to really look at human rights in supply chain, look at living wage. and But it's still a very, very long way to go. So you just mentioned legislation as an important factor to, to get us there. Uh, what do you think are other important factors that need to change to um, yeah, to, to, to better the supply chains? Well, um, legislation is an important part to take for, for uh, uh, businesses to take responsibility. Uh, also, we are coming from a situation where apparently we find that it's uh, 
just that the, all the profits in the chain are made in, in the Western end of the world and uh, where somehow we feel it's legitimate that people uh, that are actually producing these projects are not being paid fairly for it. it it's a really, a really unfair system. And so it's about legislation. It's about taking responsibility as businesses by themselves. It's about consumers realizing what we're buying. And yes, there is more transparency, but still for consumer, it's really hard to understand um, how products are made and whether everyone in the value chain is crea- is getting a fair price for uh, what we're uh, uh, consuming. And mostly, we most consumers are not willing to pay a fair price because they're so used to paying low prices for certain products that it's a big uh, change. And it will also create um, problems for people with low income to be able to afford certain products uh, if we start paying fair prices. So there is a, a whole transition that needs to take place to get to that stage. But we need to go there. So we see businesses and entrepreneurs stepping up to create better supply chains. What do we see in other sectors? Is social entrepreneurship gaining ground? Yes, it is. I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, at Social Enterprise NL, we used to do these yearly monitors. And, and also, I think the la- latest quantification for the Netherlands was that we have like 5,000 entrepreneurs that call themselves a social entrepreneur, but then there's, of course, a lot of them that are driven by impact that do not use the name, or it's not easy. That we, we Our Chamber of Commerce really, doesn't really have a checklist yet where we can actually define who is and who isn't. But I have seen it's become, uh, I think, because of the success of quite a few of them, that's shown that it can be done at scale, that has attracted a, y- a lot of young talent who want to... Um, yeah, put their, their talent and their time and their effort uh, in their work life into changing something in society and not just into shareholder value. Uh, so I see that change, um, but it's, it's, it needs to become much bigger still. And um, in case there are any aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this uh, show today, um, in which sectors do you see a lot of potential for aspiring entrepreneurs? Which ones are you expecting um, growth from? Oh, I see growth all over the board. Um, personally, so in, in Rubio invests in, in circular solutions, in, in people power, which we call solutions for people, education technology, work technology, well-being technology, so helping people live, be able to receive a living wage, for instance. We've invested in a coffee company, Wakuli, which is making sure that farmers, uh, they work with um, uh, reach living wage. Um, so we are always looking at how to improve lives of people, uh, giving the opportunities to um, to grow and, and to live healthy, fulfilling lives and not be vulnerable. But there's also a lot happening in, in clean tech revolution, in circular system, in food and ag. We have a team focusing on pure food and ag. So I can see uh, opportunities uh, in all of those segments um, and I hope we'll, we'll see them accelerate. Someone who is changing the world of food and agriculture is Guido van Stavre van Dijk from Moji Coffee, the first fair chain coffee in the world. Together with eight local teams in different countries, they are determined to leave most of the value in the countries of origin and with success, as they have recently been awarded Best for the World B Corp. Guido's career path was quite adventurous, he tells me, and it was far from clear that he would become a social entrepreneur. After a rocky school path, he took on various jobs before he saw possibilities for business in Eastern Europe. He looked around and thought that he found a golden opportunity. 
happened? Well, we found an old um, window production company, a government uh, company that was privatized. I said, okay, that's cool. So let's uh, let's buy it. And that was the uh, the first step towards Eastern uh, Europe to the buy. Beginning. It. Yeah, so there was a strategy, but uh, not particularly impact uh, driven. No. I think the only thing that drove me at that time between 30 and 40 is this uh, this strange notion of uh, financial independence. Yeah. So uh, it was mainly money at that time driving. Yeah, but and, but not money. Uh, mental independence following on financial independence. So okay. the, the idea that uh, you don't need to do things for money uh, frees up your mind, yeah. gets you into a space where there's no escape uh, ex- except your own, uh, yeah, the, the things you want to do. So and Freedom. That, so for you, that was the road to, to freedom, freedom. Yeah, mental freedom, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, that road to freedom didn't end up well, I believe. It Could exploded. You, um, it was all it light up, fired exploded. up. <laughs> Could you please share what happened there? Yeah, so the um, the, the, the factory uh, I bought, we completely uh, built it new. And I, I bought a company in the Netherlands um, to merge with it. So we had this knowledge in, uh, in the Netherlands and then we outsourced to, uh, the work. And I can remember that after we built a complete new factory and we had this big line of uh, windows standing ready to go to uh, building companies in the Netherlands. And I w- walked through the, uh, the the factory and I was literally touching the the, the windows yeah. ready for export and saying to myself, okay, we did it. And uh, of course, lot, lots need to be done, but we were uh, rapidly growing, profitable, everything was okay. And I flew back and landed in Bratislava. At that point, uh, the director called me and said, maybe you should look at the uh, uh, the news. And clicked uh, on the television and I saw my factory burning down. Oh so uh, that was quite uh, dramatic. And um, the insurance didn't pay out. So uh, being an entrepreneur was a hard lesson that you have to look at the little letters. And uh, doing things fast and quick is not always the, uh, the, the best way. And so. I guess then that sounds quite uh, intense. Looking back at that, would you say... Uh, the phase after was a low po- point for you uh, mentally. Yeah, well? absolutely. So I think uh, looking back at that period, uh, I was very close, or maybe over burn- burnout. And I was sitting at home and, uh, and 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 went to the because I had other activities also in Ukraine and uh, in Slovakia with with a very much uh, lower uh, interest. Um, so I did that for two, three, three years just to to pay the rent and uh, make sure that uh, you can keep the people on board. But then I decided I want to I want to get out. So um, I sold everything, and I uh, said I'm going to live my life uh, uh, easy and without this this big ambition and uh, big ego and stuff like that. Could you take us from there? So you were in the Netherlands, uh, no companies, no job, no money, probably. So, but imagine this: that that basically uh, I want to have a free mind. Everything. Is gone. I'm going to do uh, fun things again. And um, as an illustration, or basically a, a starting point, I rented this. I think it was 500 square meters of empty office space at uh, Sloterdijk. And there was a lot of free space, so it wasn't expensive. And it just was there was one office uh, desk. It was mine. So I was sitting there, and it was nothing. And that uh, that was really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, brilliant moment. But that's also <laughs> interesting. So you rented a really big office yeah. before you even had any idea what any you idea. were going to do with it. And, and, and a desk. And uh, But in no time, there were some uh, some people um, joining me and 
all kind of activities. And uh, at that time, I was um, was asked to become a par- part of the board of uh, the Institute of Human Activities, which is a organization run by Renzo Martins, a Dutch Flemish artist. Years after, he um, he uh, contacted me and said, "Do you want to become part of my uh, board because I'm doing a new project in Congo?" And at that time, he um, finalized his second uh, art documentary, "Enjoy Poverty." And it was opening film of the uh, ITFA, 2010-11. And uh, he shows that countries like uh, Congo uh, don't earn their money with the natural resources they have or the stuff they build with it, um, but with poverty because uh, development aid is such a big uh, source of income from these countries. And this is an industry run by uh, white folks as well, so it was really uh, well challenging the, uh, the status quo. Yeah, it's of quite Controversial yeah, name as well, co- enjoy poverty. Enjoy poverty, so you can better enjoy poverty because it never gets better. But it did something to you then, because how did this eventually lead to... Uh, yeah, it, it, it did something because... Uh, so he asked me to become board uh, uh, a member, helping him to f- find funds for his next project. Because he, he, he got a lot of critique that it was this um, this uh, yeah, outsider uh, confronting... Mm-hmm the world with something but not not doing anything himself so yeah maybe we can find something in congo that we can sell so we looked at all kind of uh, stuff and then uh, i don't know how it happened but i thought maybe we can do we can do something with coffee so uh, i uh, started analyzing the supply chain and yeah one surprise after the the other that's um, 30 years ago that time uh, 25 25 30 years ago Almost half of the value in the coffee supply chain remained in um, in these countries, and all the coffee co- growing countries are around the equator, and uh, and all of them are highly dependent on development aid. So at that time, fifty percent remained in those countries. When mm-hmm. we started, only fifteen, and nowadays only ten. So less and so less 10% money. Ten percent of the value of the whole coffee supply chain stays in the countries where it's resourced. Correct, and um, and if you correct it for inflation, it's even uh, it's because worse and worse and worse and worse. But as an entrepreneur, I found it more striking that uh, not only the nominal values, the total money, became less, but also the value adding activities became less and less. At the same time, big multinationals with big roasteries organized all their value adding activities close to the market. Mm-hmm. And there were all kinds of reasons to do that at that time. So, so the uh, the value adding activities in those countries become less, less, less and less. And that's that's very close to the theme of uh, enjoy poverty. Yeah? Resources don't earn shit. They don't produce anything. It's just extracted. Yeah. It's uh, completely... Exploited. Uh, exploited, yeah, absolutely. It's planetary plundering by some monarchs that uh, and oligarchs that just become richer and richer. So... Less money stays behind and less value and activities. And then the third uh, negative experience was that I, th- that I thought, yeah, but why should I do something? Because if you know something, you can't unknown, but mm-hmm. know anymore. But why should you act? Eh? And I thought, yeah, well, already vote left, pay taxes. And everybody is already sustainable because you had fair trade and woods and rainforest and organic. So uh, being uh, uh, a nosy guy, I, I looked at this, uh, the annual reports and then I became angry that basically everything that we see as a sustainable uh, monetary has uh, almost no effect. 
So it's ultra cool for the awareness, mm -hmm. but if you really do the follow follow the money uh, uh, trick, then uh, yeah, it, it was not the solution. So I, I can remember waking up literally with the fair chain in the approach in my mind. What would happen if we would organize value and activities in closer to the uh, or in the countries of origin, and uh, try to have this 100% equal uh, uh, goal that basically 50% is earned in the producing country and 50% mm -hmm. in the consuming country. So that was the uh, the driver. And at the same time, I, I learned that uh, all coffee worldwide comes from uh, Ethiopia. Some say Jamen. And by uh, the Dutch uh, VOC, was tra transported all around the, uh, the globe. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, how cool is it if we can start a VOC 2.0? Yeah, 2.0 in yeah. a very different way, yeah. though, I, I yeah. assume. So uh, start uh, um, earning more money in those uh, countries and exporting that model all around uh, the world. Yeah. So I went to Ethiopia for the first time in my uh, life. And it was at an, in the year that the World Economic Forum was uh, held there. And I met a very interesting uh, uh, local entrepreneur. Or not an entrepreneur, he was uh, uh, somebody working for the government, but wanted to become an entrepreneur. And I said, okay, I'm going to set up a roastery here. Do you want to join us? So the economic side is getting clearer. You add value by setting up roasteries in the country of origin. Um, the social side is focused on the farmer. You you were the first to do a living income study and now pay farmers a living income wage. And now on top of that, there is, of course, also the environmental side to it. The coffee sector is really like uh, every towel you, uh, you pick up. up there is something... Some crawly yeah. little thingy coming on, on it. And uh, on an ac uh, economic perspective, it's one of the biggest um, uh, causes of deforestation. Um, basically, you should stop drinking uh, uh, coffee. It's as worse as eating meat or drinking uh, milk. Stop. So it's caused poverty and especially also deforestation because the earnings are too low. Normally, coffee grows in... Uh, is forest shielded. So mm -hmm. That's... Uh, uh, on paper, this goes together very well. Only if the earnings are too low, they start cutting the uh, the trees, put some cattle to on it, or, or eat, put something on it which they can eat. And then at, um, in parallel, you see these huge farms, commercial farms, especially in Vietnam and Brazil, hundreds of hectares. All the forest is cut, and um, you see this whiny approach. So sun crop is that is called. So no shield. Shielding from for forest or trees direct on the sun, which uh, leads to mediocre coffee, but it grows fast. So big uh, beans, very cheap. And that's one of my frustrations because a lot of these farms are um, now uh, either fire trade certified, even biological or organic, especially in the Minas Gerais in Brazil. But 20 years uh, ago, there was all natural forest. So that has all been cut for this industrial uh, farm. So th those two processes uh scaling uh and deforestation and small farmers that can't live off the farm and also start cutting uh, so in uh, ethiopia alone in the last 15 to 20 years that much forest has been cut that could have absorbed the whole co2 emissions of the netherlands so to give you an idea oh. how our life is uh, should uh, be entwined with their life yeah and how the cups of coffee we drink are having a detrimental effect in uh, in, the, in the countries in the coffee belt. Correct. So you, you, you see these in initiatives uh, to replace coffee by artificial uh, uh, alternatives or 
try to make them from grain or whatever, which is is uh, is cool, but it is also uh, basically uh, not attacking the root cause, yeah. but uh, uh, yeah, trying to basically cope with the the consequences. Yeah. And our approach is now let's go to the root cause. Where's the dirt? Let's clean it. And to clean the dirt, as Guido puts it, you have to roll up your sleeves. With Mohi Coffee, Guido has recently purchased 240 hectares of land in the south of Ethiopia to set the example of how coffee can be grown sustainably. It's uh, an old uh, uh, coffee farm badly run by a family that just got it from the previous regime. And um, they said, okay, we adopt it. We are going to cut it in the bigger pieces and then we're going to ask farmers to become uh, 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 renters or pachters. And then in the end, of course, they should, should get back their, uh, their land and start owning it. So it's a transformative approach to at least in a controlled environment, experiment with skill and biodiversity. And then just acquire 20 hectares nearby, which is uh, deforested. So they cut it already. And uh, I could buy it back from the, from, from the farmers and ask them to participate in the reforestation program. And there we're going to create 20 uh, uh, one hectare agroforestry plots. And you have optimum climate uh, uh, adaptation and uh, CO2 emission absorption. Pioneering with your own land in Ethiopia. Yeah, Sounds uh, exciting. Science, uh, and, and that we have under control. But uh, around it, there are uh, 12,000 farmers. And from the Fair Chain Foundation, we're now digitizing them. So uh, giving them a voice and, 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 and make sure that we understand who they are. And then we're going to train them on the plots about this agroforestry approach. So what we hope, and of course, we have a lot of the, these impact pathways uh, uh, planned, to, that they start adopting that. So on this big plot of land, you are experimenting with zoning on forest lands. And on the smaller plot of land in Ethiopia with agroforestry, um, you are doing something similar in Kenya as well, right? Yeah, so the, the idea of the, uh, the micro uh, plots, uh, this agroforestry micro plots, came from our experiences in Kenya, where um, we work on a carbon neutral supply chain and train the farmers to work with uh, biocompost and uh, organize small plots of uh, agroforestry as well, uh, working with Agiterra and uh, the Dutch government, RVO on uh, a mind-boggling uh, uh, experiment. Which mind-boggling, all, tell yeah, me more. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, it's very cool because um, Kenya is different than Ethiopia, in a way more advanced in a negative sense. Um, the, the, the coffee sector is really like um, destroying the, uh, the, the soil. A lot of uh, trees are being cut and huge use of, um, of uh, artificial uh, compost and uh, pesticides. So we try to create a business model around biocompost. And if anything good comes from uh, this war in Ukraine, is that the, um, the artificial pesticides are so expensive that now people see that it, we already know that it is better, but now uh, on the longer term, but now it's also far cheaper. So we see really this flying wheel of uh, everywhere people are starting using our methodology. And um, the, the agroforestry plots are also planted now to show in three years that this monocrop approach, only coffee, is not the way to go. Please do other things as well, because otherwise the soil and, and the earth is just being destroyed. So big ambitions, but of course you don't do this alone. Um, we always like to show the power of collaboration all across the world. So we have contacted your local team in Ethiopia. 
Let's have a listen. Hi, this is Kalil Masfil Tsege. I am speaking to you from Coffee Roastery here in Ethiopia. And he tells us what he hopes that Moji Coffee can achieve. Hope to accomplish with Moji Coffee, one, to give a decent life, a living income wage for outgrowers and ingrowers farmers, to restore the deforested land from our intervention area, three, to create job opportunity for youth and women, four, increasing the volume and the value of specialty coffee exported from our intervention area. Guido, I saw a very broad smile on your face while listening to this. Yeah, uh, the hero. What does this do to you? You're completely right. Uh, It seems like something that has run from the desk in Amsterdam. That's not the case. Uh, Currently, our whole Ethiopian organization is quite a lot of people. There is none, uh, nobody from uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, Yurian will go there now as uh, part of the Young Executive uh, uh, Program. So it is a locally run uh, 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 organization where, and that's something, basically, I also have to find, uh, find my way a little bit because... What I didn't want is this neo-colonial uh, colonial, uh, uh, attitude. So that's why when I set up the roastery after a year or two, I asked uh, how to become partners, equal partners. Had a lot of uh, uh, problems, but let's... So this equal partners is, is important. But what I also found out that I have a voice as well. And uh, and putting your, your own thoughts and identity on the table uh, is, is important as well. So, and that's... A, a journey that uh, Khalil and I uh, went through together. That uh, first it was very sensitive, uh, yeah. culturally, um, uh, religiously, uh, all kind of... Uh, so you stepped back a bit because you didn't want to interfere too much? Correct, but also in our uh, interactions, you really had to get used to uh, to each other. But uh, I must say, without him, uh, it would never have been su- such a success. He's a real hero. He's uh, has a strong foundation in the rural uh, um, uh, communities. And he's so much uh, uh, driven by the, uh, the, the fair chain approach. So he's a cool dude. It's interesting because um, you just said, I'm not interested in growth. I don't hear that from entrepreneurs so often. Um, but as I hear from you I, th- you, I think a lot of thought now has gone into at the back of your company, so the yeah. structures, the ownership model. Uh, but eventually, coffee doesn't sell itself. Correct. So um, let's talk a bit about the front, um, the sales and marketing. What's your what's your vision on that? We adopted a concept that we call CrowdSpeak. And we want to give our marketing money to our crowd. So how can we basically uh, empower them to become ambassadors or give coffee away or become part of the marketing mix? And on that route, also together with the Fairchain Foundation and, and the technology we uh, we experimented with, we said, okay, how cool would it be if we give the marketing money directly to the customer? So um, from the Fairchain Foundation, we did an experiment with in chocolate together with the United Nations. And there we put 25 cents on a chocolate bar, which of course was the first chocolate bar produced in Ecuador, in Country of Wars, and all the, 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 the seven yeah. things <laughs> and more. <laughs> But then we gave the marketing money to the, the customers and uh, asked them or gave them the freedom to keep or share. And if you could keep it, if you could keep it, you could spend it on your next uh, uh, procurement as some kind of uh, rebate. 
which is okay because that's called loyalty and our model is okay, so it will fuel growth. Or you can share it and then um, this uh, money would wind up in the pocket of a farmer in the Amazons to plant a tree. And what we found out that this kind of engagement loyalty programs with our marketing money related to impact works very well. So there is a QR code on the chocolate bar. Correct. Through that, they haven't. They can see uh, who is paid what and where the chocolate the comes from. The whole yeah. supply chain yeah. they can see, so it's transparent. Correct. And then it's like, it. okay, on top of it, you can now choose or you're going to use this money as a discount for your next bar or you're going to give this money to the Create farmer. Create additional impact. Additional impact. So I, I, I found this... Uh, the, the marketing budget as a potential additional source for uh, uh, for impact. And if you look at that from a macro perspective, I think we spend 800 billion uh, annually on marketing in the global north and we need 880 billion to end global poverty. So if this model works better than the duck face of Kim Kardashian to get your attention, we have a golden, uh, uh, golden chance of uh, bringing real chunks of money. Okay. So it is beyond offsetting to insetting is living income is ultra cool and yeah, it is engaging. I think this eh? is cool as well. So we have to remember this in sentence then. So story doing instead of storytelling. And story proving. is. The, you say what, story proving for instead me it, of... For me it's very important that impact is quantifiable and verifiable and we go beyond the storytelling and in the beginning we were story doers. Eh? We, yeah. we showed it, we have this impact report but I, uh, with the Fair Chain Foundation we invest in this blockchain uh, Shizzle, uh, because we believe that the proof is important. And um, since the models are redistributive from nature, nation, nature and design, uh, blockchain is also interesting to transfer value between all the uh, the actors. Yeah. So that's why we remain, but we don't talk about blockchain. Okay, so technology. story proving story instead proving, of yes. storytelling. And we hope, and that's of course the big HO hypothesis, that the customers that care will find out that companies that have quantifiable and verifiable impact have bigger brand value, a longer uh, customer yeah. lifetime value, more loyalty. Yeah. So they will grow, outgrow the story fakers. With so big the, budgets. Truth, the truth will sell. The truth will, uh, will sell. No, I, I think this is very interesting also. And I think it's becoming more and more relevant because a lot of companies, they're obviously aware that they need to uh, intertwine sustainability in their marketing stories. And they're doing that more and more. But it's also a bit of a personal frustration that as a consumer, it's so hard to yeah. tell what to believe and what yeah. not. And that's exactly, I think on Monday, uh, we go to the uh, the minister together with uh, three other companies from MVO Nederland. Which other companies? Uh, Arte is going, AZN is uh, going, and Machinis is, uh, is going. Oh, yeah. MOE Coffee. Um, so I learned that 100% of the coffee is grown in the coffee belt, ranging from Brazil through Africa all the way to India, uh, but over 99% of the coffee is actually roasted in the West um, and that this market is dominated by a few big coffee brands. You're paving a new way, but eventually, of course, you want all these really big coffee brands to adopt your approach as well. Or die. Or die. No, exactly. <laughs> That's the question. What's your approach? Uh, are you, I, I, are you trying or to die. prove a business model and have them adap adapt to it? Or do you just want to become so big that you're going to be kind of the only way to produce coffee and have yeah. them die? Uh, but when we started, uh, I had uh, uh, two, two pieces of advice. Uh, one, and both were linked, of course, with Tony's. Uh, you have to be a love brand. And 
I said, well, I don't need fans. I need warriors. We have a, a task to, uh, to do. And I didn't really look at, my, look at it as my company, but the movement. So we, were, we had this, this aggressive, let's getting things done uh, attitude. And the, the other question was, do you want to influence others to, uh, to follow you? And I said, well, I have no time for it. I, I'm going to focus on my own model. And then we see how it, uh, how it works. And if it works, then the others should follow or die. Because uh, in my vision, and that's maybe uh, a one-liner that, that, that we can touch on uh, a little bit, the Fair Chain Foundation, which is a separate foundation that helps basically companies like Mui, and we're now working uh, in honey and avocados and, um, and shoes, is it is the task of companies of the future to build business models um, based on shared value chains. So value chains that benefit everybody and not only the uh, the oligarchs of uh, some big multinationals and i added the element of positive externalities because we have so much basically uh, neoliberal debris to clean that business models of the future should uh, not only cause less problems or but cause positive externalities mm-hmm. so contribute to cleaning up the uh, uh, the mess so that's uh, what drives me from Mui. so I'm not particularly interested in uh, in growth or, uh, or these kind. Of, I first want that model to be uh, uh, correct, and that is closely linked with the experiment we will start later because we had all kind of issues with uh, with investors and ownership, and I bought back the company to get rid of it. But now uh, I want to address the, the the pillar three and four that Kate Wavert from the donut economy also touches on. I personally found out that an economy or a company can only do so much, can only contribute so much to positive externalities as the shareholders and the investors allow it. So touching on the subject of ownership and, uh, and finance is a pivotal for uh, me being able to develop the model and uh, conclude the puzzle in my mind, which is basically my only uh, real interest. I want to have the puzzle solved. And then it's something like a holy uh, triangle where companies like us showing that business models of the future can be profitable, can be sustainable, have this positive externality effect. Then you uh, you see consumers that uh, um, and the undercurrent of change, you see consumers more educated, uh, more willing to find out if something true is true or not. And then we need legislation uh, to make sure that these big companies cannot basically keep on um, uh, causing this inertia and say it's not possible and this lobbying. And now again, uh, the the due diligence uh, legislation in the Netherlands, we were very progressive and now we just fall back to this UMP and bullshit uh, measurement. So if we can show that it's possible, consumers demand it, then we can ask from the, the politicians to say, and now we need laws to make sure this is dinosaurs either uh, adapt or die. Okay. And that's so that's not my ambition. My ambition is just to show that the model works and is scalable. And I don't need to be the next. No, maybe. What were you <laughs> going to say? I don't need to need to be the next. Next now, Egbert. But uh, last I said, well, why shouldn't we become the next uh, Nestle? The next. Why not? Yeah, the Nestle of good. Ambition's high, right? Yeah. After years of hard and dedicated work, Moji Coffee is making more and more impact. But the success also leads to a struggle. Guido tells me. Is he still the man most fit for the job to help continue Moji to grow? Yeah, so the, the, 
for me, the dichotomy between where my thinking is and what the organization needs. Uh, because the organization needs now to grow, and that means more of the same. It needs professionalism, processes, uh, sales and marketing, just uh, make sure that the model gets the position it, uh, it deserves. My puzzle is still with the model. And sometimes I have this problem that uh, uh, there is this, this gap between what the team needs to do and what I think is most interesting in my puzzle. And for me, the, the puzzle is about ownership and, uh, and the way you finance the company linked to uh, the growth of the company. Because my, I have this philosophy, I developed this philosophy that you should not buy a product but own it. So become part of the ecosystem and be, become part of the, uh, the micro-economy. And at the same time, 99.9% um, .9 of the people in, uh, in Europe, or maybe even the Netherlands, have never heard of uh, Fairchain yet, or how important it is to roast in country of origin. So this, this hierarchy of messaging and, and, and make sure that this, this holistic framework is not diluted or, or too much for people, that's, that's a problem, or at least a challenge. Um, and I want to uh, use the last quarter of this year to connect it again by starting the first uh, coffee common on the farm, which is uh, a very, how do you call it, uh, uh, geeky, because it's about decentralized finance, decentralized ownership. It has this blockchain layer where for the first time ever, uh, consumers and producers work together instead against each other in the marketplace as adversaries, they work together to get this optimal position, optimal way of producing uh, uh, coffee. And I'm going to ask the community to, to become an investor, but not as a shareholder in the classical sense. Uh, I buy some shares and give me the dividend. But uh, it's not about ownership, but about taking ownership. So you can only become part of this micro-economy if you as a customer or an investor also actively participate in the flourishing of the, uh, the Dota yeah. ecosystem. If, and if I managed to somehow glue that to uh, all the, the, the cool stuff we have done the last 10 years, then the two worlds uh, hopefully will merge and then, uh, then we are ready for uh, world domination. I can't imagine it, yeah. Is that clear at all? Or is that no, it's very clear, yeah. yeah. But I'm also triggered by what you said in the beginning, eh? because the company at one point, well, you founded it, so you, you had all your creativity and perseverance and um, your whole, you, could, you could bring your whole personality in and, and, and decide on the direction as well. But now the company is becoming bigger and you just said, you know, it needs a certain professionalism, uh, probably something different than, well, you have to step back as well in a sense. Yeah. So. So this is an open invitation for anyone willing and able to run this company. Come and get it. <laughs> so you are able to set your ego aside then? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. And it's not about ego, although I have it. Uh, again, uh, it's about convincing arguments. So I'm more the architect. I'm more the, the fact finder. I, I want to see that things are correct. And don't come with bullshit, but don't come with hierarchy or with uh, positions or with ego uh, alone. Bring me the arguments and then I'm your dude. And then you're, you're, <laughs> you're our dude. Yeah. Sounds clear. So um, last question. Ten years from now, Guido, what are we going to see of uh, Moji? Yeah, that's work-life balance. Eh? And that's uh, something that went completely out of whack the last uh, difficult years. And uh, you most likely can... Uh, Remember the starting of the conversation that I started 
from a period that I didn't want to have anything uh, uh, ambitious anymore. So this went Eastern completely out of, uh, out of whack. And um, I promised my wife that in 2024, we should get to a condition, a situation where half of the year, we, are, uh, we don't need to work. We're not going to work. So that's quite fast, I can, uh, I can tell you. And so 2024 is not in 10 years, but in a couple of years, then at least half of my uh, day-to-day activities should be run by uh, others that most likely are better suited for it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I don't know. And then I don't know what to do because, again, still I think the most frightening room in your mind to enter is the one where there is no external pressure or need. And then the only one you're facing is yourself and getting in a situation where you wake up and the only thing that you have to answer to is yourself is, uh, I think, the the most frightening phase of life, but also the most beautiful phase. So, so when there is no more distractions, no more distractions. What are you afraid of? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly, I don't know. But uh, I have uh, a strong coping mechanisms to uh, to always be busy and get the adrenaline. To, uh, so I know it's there and I walk away from it. Okay, so that's your future. And then for Moi, so someone else is going to take over. And then what would you say is the final um, dream you have for your company? Yeah, I, th- I hope that our company will either be in the position to uh, to eat the, the dinosaurs um, and and really become big without uh, uh, without uh, any um, uh, how do you call it uh, 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 that, that, that you have to change your model so be be truth and grow uh, either that but there's also a chance of course that uh, that we've created a model that others are better and willing to do it as well and grow it with more success but then that we will be recognized as the leader of the industry the one the company that did it the, the example the, the pathfinder that everybody could feel very proud to have contributed to this but my bet is on the first one wow <laughs> big ambitions yeah. and every sip counts huh? Every sip counts. It's not, the big story is not, not available. It's available for everybody. Just every sip counts. Uh, it's the voice of millions of people that basically can throw out of power the, the, the few planet-plundering oligarchs. So think before you drink coffee. Yeah. And then drink pink. Drink pink. <laughs> My bags are pink. Eh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> good, uh, good details. Okay, uh, Guido, thank you so much for this conversation. I wish you all the best of luck. Okay, same to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us the next episode for another inspiring entrepreneurial journey. Or maybe even start or continue your own. This podcast is powered by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands and the Netherlands Enterprise Agency. For more information about how they can help you propel your business forward, please visit rvo.nl.